You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, December 13th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Associate Professor at the IU Media School, Lauren Smith, about the Biden administration's recent announcement that it will not send any official representation to the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics as a protest to China's human rights abuses. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners meeting on December 7th, Parks and Recreation Director Paula McDevitt presented the 2022 non-reverting budget. Um, But as I said, this is the 2022 non-reverting budget. And just a little bit of background, our non-reverting budget, and you review that monthly in your packet as well, but it's our established enterprise fund. A lot of our programs that you set uh, the fees for run through our non-reverting budget. It's um, developed as a zero-based budget model, just like we do our general fund budget. Um, And it also allows a lot of uh, flexibility um, in order to meet our our participants and our customer needs. Um, Again, it is a a projection. So um, from year to year, obviously we monitor the the revenue and expenses, um, but it also reduces the reliance on the general fund tax base. As you know, um, we go through that rigorous general fund um, approval process, but uh, this is a whole other arm of our operation, which allows us much more greater flexibility. As the trends in programming and numbers increase or decrease, we can we can flex um, and ebb and flow with it. She said that there was a decrease in the seasonal staff positions and associated costs like health insurance. There was an increase in supply costs as building materials and agricultural supplies rose with inflation. The board unanimously passed the 2022 non-reverting budget. Parks and Recreation Development Division Director Tim Street shared how the construction is going at the Cascades Park and asked for a contract approval with Scenic Construction Services, Incorporated. Uh, This is part of the Cascades Phase 5 trail project in streambank stabilization. Uh, This is to cover change order number one, uh, which encompasses a few different items with that project. Uh, It adds light fixtures uh, along a newly constructed trail. Uh, We've determined we were able to restore that alternate from the original bid packet, um, which was a long-term goal to have light fixtures down there along the new quarter-mile section of trail uh, to to make it safer, to make it uh, more pleasant, especially in the winter, short hours, things like that, getting to the waterfall shelter uh, and across the bridge. Uh, It addresses the safety concern at the pedestrian bridge uh, by fixing a drop-off into the creek. Uh, corrects an electrical service issue to the waterfall shelter um, that was discovered as part of the project um, and will fund the restoration of the waterfall spillway parking lot to turf uh, instead of back to uh, a gravel lot. The board approved the project unanimously, 
The next meeting will be held on January 25th, 2022. On December 6th, at the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting, Parks and Recreation Development Division Director Tom Street presented a project to add lighting at Seminary Square Park. Uh, you can see the uh, orange circles were the original lights, um, which I don't know how old they were, but they were they were quite old. Um, as I mentioned, we lost the last two this summer. They were actually about nine foot tall acorn style lights. Um, and they were, the last two were actually ricks down. Um, and so part of looking at this has been choosing something that's number one, a little bit taller, uh, that is a little harder, uh, to break. Um, hopefully we are not tested to the extreme on that. Uh, we want to pick something that adds value to the park and adds aesthetic, uh, but remains durable. Uh, and because it is taller um, and dark sky compliant now, um, which is one bonus of upgrading the lighting, um, we would only need five of these. Um, they'd originally suggested six, and we actually removed one because we feel like we're able to achieve the foot candles that we want in the park. Um, they'll also have a control system that allows us to set the light level uh, remotely via a laptop as well. So, um, you know, for example, we can keep a, a low level of light there and then turn it up as needed if you know, we need to do perform maintenance or things like that. Uh, especially important in the winter, as we know, it's dark now. So uh, the lighting will, will really be crucial in the winter months. Street said the installation of lights for the interior of the park is for maintenance, safety, and aesthetic purposes. Board member Deborah Meyerson asked about the Redevelopment Commission's ability to fund other projects in Seminary Square. Not strictly related to this resolution, but it's common with the idea of capital improvements for Seminary Park, and that is, could RDC funds be used for restrooms in this park, and if so, how would that be brought forward? City Controller Jeff Underwood responded, saying that the Parks Department, Engineering Department, and Public Works work together on park master plans. I know the idea of restrooms... Um, it, it, Availability has been a big item. Uh, we had public restrooms installed in both of the uh, two new parking garages, uh, and funds were made available for uh, the 4th Street garage to be open um, on a 24-hour basis. So we're going to test that out and see how that goes, uh, obviously, uh, looking at added patrols to make sure that uh, there's no damage. This is a park uh, that has uh, seen a lot of damage. We've seen this with the lighting. So uh, that's another thing that we take into um, account is can we keep the facilities open? Can we maintain them and can we keep them safe? So that's a little bit of the background of how we work on these. The board voted to approve the lighting fund unanimously. The next Redevelopment Commission meeting will be held on December 20th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
38-year-old Michael Bennett was incarcerated at Pendleton Correctional Facility near Indianapolis when he died last week after an outbreak of a rare form of pneumonia. Multiple units have been affected and five others were hospitalized. The often fatal bacterial infection known as Legionnaire's disease causes severe lung inflammation. No vaccine is available. The illness is typically spread through facility water systems or air conditioning, and officials explain that hot water to the facility has been shut off in response to the outbreak. IDOC Watch reported that in late September of this year, inmates were alerted to a problem with water quality, but were told that the risk was minimal. Staff began drinking bottled water, but inmates were made to continue drinking the contaminated water. Kristen Kelly, the IU Health Nursing Director of Infection Prevention, told Fox 59 News that contamination from Legionnaire's disease can linger for months, and the IDOC has given little information about the source of contamination or their plans for remediating it. Michael Bennett's death comes a few days after the death in the same prison of an elderly inmate from COVID-19 complications. Since the start of the pandemic, prisoners, loved ones, and other advocates have criticized the lack of hygiene and distancing measures in Indiana prisons, with 4,000 inmates so far testing positive for coronavirus. 71-year-old Matu Shakur, the stepfather of late rapper Tupac Shakur, has been incarcerated for over three decades. After contracting COVID-19 inside federal prison, Shakur's cancer returned in his bone marrow. Originally scheduled for release in 2016, Shakur had also accrued nearly three years of good time, which should make him eligible for immediate release. Instead, Shakur has been denied release by parole nine times. And an application for compassionate release on the basis of Shakur's health crisis was denied by Judge Charles Haight Jr., the same judge who sentenced him three decades earlier. Haight was 90 years old when he ruled against Shakur's release, and suggesting that Shakur could be released when he was, quote, at the point of approaching death, unquote. A member of the Black Nationalist Organization Republic of New Africa, Mutulu Shakur is well known as an acupuncturist who popularized the NADA protocol, an accessible acupuncture technique for addressing methadone and heroin addiction. Shakur became a target of the U.S. government's now infamous COINTELPRO project in the 1970s, as he was working to organize grassroots holistic health care in the Bronx in New York. Inside prison, friends say that Shakur is well known for his ability to mediate race-based gang conflicts encouraged by extreme administrative segregation. The administration cites Shakur's work organizing and communicating with the outside as a primary reason for his illegal continued incarceration. Specifically, the commission cited Shakur's describing himself as a political prisoner, signing off letters with stiff resistance, and speaking about his persecution by COINTELPRO. Shakur's lawyers are still waiting to hear back about their latest requests for compassionate release. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Associate Professor at the IU Media School, Lauren Smith, about the Biden administration's recent announcement that it will not send any official representation to the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics as a protest to China's human rights abuses. For more on the diplomatic boycott, we turn to Cade Young.
So Lauren Smith, associate professor at the IU Media School with a focus on sports media, thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So U.S. athletes will still participate in the 2022 Olympics, but the Joe Biden administration says it will not send any official representation to the games given China's, quote, ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. So first off, what do you make of this diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics? I think given everything that has gone on or everything that's, that's happening in China, I think with, you know, obviously the, the abuses of Muslims in the region, you know, crackdowns on the democracy protests in Hong Kong. There's also the disappearance of uh, one of the tennis stars from public life after she leveled accusations against the Communist Party. It's not surprising. It's not surprising to me that the U- it's not only the U.S. at this point. It's now, I believe, we're up to six different countries, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, all of these countries have said, no, this is a stand that we need to take. And it's it's a challenging way to take a stand because ultimately, you know, what what does it really do? You know, the U.S. not showing up for a diplomatic boycott isn't all of a sudden going to magically make all of those issues disappear. But it is a way for the U.S. and other nations to take a stand and say, we don't agree with what is going on. We do not approve of this behavior. We do not approve of, of the things that are, are happening in the country. And we won't go to that country and, you know, tacitly support what is happening there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I appreciate your insight there. At face value, sports and politics are two things that are seemingly at odds with one another. But real political change can come about through activism in sports. Would you touch on how sports can spring about political change? Sure. Um, I will dispute one thing you said uh, about sports and politics not seeming like they're a coupling. Um, mm-hmm. And I will point out that politics and sports have been inherently intertwined since the beginning of sport and politics. You know, if you go back to the first Olympics, if you go back to the Greek city states, um, you know, sport was a means for political leaders to get together and discuss diplomatic issues and and ongoing. And so we've seen throughout the course of history over sport, Roman gladiators and, you know, you know, looking to the 1936 Olympics, looking to the protests during the civil rights era. Sport and politics is something that is, and I tell my students all the time, it is inherently intertwined and they are definitely bedfellows. What most people think about when they think about politics and sport are instances of, you know, standing out activism and protest. And that's where backlash comes against, you know, keep politics out of sport. But but they're there. They're intertwined all the way from public funding of stadiums to protests. With respect to how, you know, sport can influence political change, you know, obviously athletes have a huge command on the sports stage. They have a huge platform. And one of one of the things that it can it can do is it can start one a conversation and it can get people to look at issues that they may not realize are going on. And that that reaction isn't always instantaneous. If we look back to, you know, the Mexico Olympics with the Black Power salute, when those two athletes came back to the U.S., they weren't welcomed with open arms, right? They were kicked off the U.S. team. They were sent home in disgrace. And it took decades for their courage, you know, for their stance to be recognized and for them to be heralded as heroes. But it at least allowed the conversation to start happening. And there's been other instances, you know, ping pong diplomacy, sending hockey players over to the Soviet Union after the Olympics, 
the World Cup match in 1998 between U.S. and Iran that have been used as a way to thaw political tensions across the globe. So it it really becomes a starting a starting spot, a starting place to you know bring light to these issues and then start having conversations about them. Now, focusing on the Olympics, how unprecedented is this move to not send official representation to the Winter Games? In other words, throughout the history of the Olympics, have we seen anything like this before? You know, at least in the past decade or so, we've had discussions about, I remember when the Sochi Olympics came, there was a question about, um, you know, should the Olympics be boycotted because of, you know, human rights abuses and violations in Russia and Sochi? You know, since Beijing was announced for the Winter Olympics and when it was announced for the 2008 Summer Olympics, there were discussions about human rights violations and and what should be done and what could be done. Obviously, in 1980, the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics over, you know, Cold War tensions. And, you know, as time has gone on, that's sort of been looked back at, you know, this this punished athletes who had nothing to do with it. In the 2020 Olympics, you know, only First Lady Joe Biden went to went to Tokyo for several different reasons, you know, COVID being one of them. But we really it's it's unusual to see a huge diplomatic boycott. And it's unusual in the sense of history to see multiple countries step forward and say, we are boycotting. We are not sending diplomats. We are not going to be a part of this. So this is a pretty bold move on the part of the United States, but it's also bold as more countries are are joining this boycott and more countries are saying we're not we're not going while athletes or nations can make political statements for good others may use them for more malicious reasons can you think of examples where a political statement was made in sports for more cynical reasons um, I think at least in the context of the Olympics would be the most notable would be the 1972 Munich Olympics, the situation where 11 Israeli athletes were kidnapped and killed by a Palestinian terrorist group. That's probably the most overt and most brazen you know, form of political protest that has happened in the course of the Olympics. I mentioned the 1998 World Cup match between between the U.S. and Iran. Not that it had to do with the teams or the athletes, but there were groups that were in the stadium that were doing political protesting. They were holding up signs. You know, there was a threat of you know potential violence in the stadium. I tell my students that back in 1998, you know, terrorist acts at a sporting event were a little bit different than what we think of now. But there were groups in there that were staging political protests. That may be the next, you know, most negative one. But, but I think the Munich Olympics, the 1972 Munich Olympics and the kidnap and murder of, of athletes would be the one example that definitely stands out from the rest as negative. I see. I see. Well, kind of in the same vein, and, and you touched on something similar earlier, but in 1980, the U.S. boycotted the Olympics to protest Russian aggression in Afghanistan. Now, from what I understand, this didn't really lead to any political change, and it really only penalized athletes. Do you think it's a good move that athletes are still allowed to participate in the 2022 Winter Olympics? Athletes stayed home and nothing got done, right? You know, there may have been a conversation or two, but ultimately it didn't lead to wide-scale political change. And while I think sport is a place that can open up conversations where I think sport can lead to, you know, change, I don't necessarily think holding the athletes back from participating in the Olympics is the right move to do that. You know, I know I said that sport and politics are inherently intertwined, but when you look at 
when you look at the athlete side of it, these are athletes that have been training, you know, their whole life for, for years, for decades. Many of them, this would be their only shot at Olympic Games, depending on their sport. Some sports are not reasonable to expect two, three, four Olympic Games. And so at the end of the day, if there hasn't been proven success, um, proven demonstrated success in withholding athletes and not letting them participate, then I think ultimately you're punishing individuals who don't have a part in this process and don't have a say. So, you know, from a global scale, obviously, yes, I would say everybody should stand down and nobody should go to China and everybody should should stay home. But from an athlete's side, one, having been an athlete myself, you know, I, I would look at the situation and say, I'm not involved in, in these. And if I disagree with these, I have my own platform where I can speak out and say, I don't agree with these accusations. I don't agree with these values. But, you know, that's that's sort of the lot that the athletes, they don't have a choice in where to participate in the Olympic Games. So it's those cities are selected. And I, and I would, I would add this, you know, a a diplomatic boycott does not affect the athletes in any way, shape or form, save for, you know, they might not get a congratulations from the president immediately after their event. You know, there might not be a shot of the president or any other diplomat in the stands, but ultimately that doesn't affect their performance on the field. Taking that choice Mm -hmm. away from them and saying, you know, all athletes are not allowed to go, I, I think is not a great move. But we also need to understand that at this point in time, any athlete has the right to refuse and say, I choose myself not to go to this country. I make that choice not to participate in a country that has these violations because of my beliefs and my values. And so I think in that respect, it's better to leave it up to the individual athlete. Now, this is a pretty clear message the Biden administration is sending to be tough on China. Of all the outlets the administration could use to send this message, why do you think they chose the Olympics, of all things, to call out China's human rights abuses? I think it's a smart and a strategic move because of the viewing audience that the Olympics gets, not just in the United States, but around the world. You know, worldwide, this is an event that the entire world will tune into and watch in some form. And so to take a stand and say, we are not participating that news filters out from just outside the U.S. It reaches other countries. It reaches other leaders. It reaches other individuals. They can take a stand around St. Patrick's Day when there's no Olympics going on, and and probably a good majority of the people would would shrug their shoulders and either not even know what's going on or maybe not pay attention to it. But given the command and given the presence and given the prestige of the Olympics, it's a very big stage with which to get this message out. And so when people are tuning to the Olympics, I mean, obviously, when they watch NBC, when they watch, you know, any of the pre-Olympic coverage, I'm pretty certain that, you know, the NBC affiliates and the NBC anchors that are over in Beijing are going to be talking about this move. So based on the scope of the audience that will be watching, you know, it's a large audience to raise the awareness about what's going on. Lastly, you were once an all-American gymnast and diver. You're an avid sports fan and still compete in triathlons and duathlons and even completed two Ironman races. So given your interest and passion in sports, I want to get your perspective on this, more of a personal question. What is your favorite part of the Olympic Games? At the end of the day, my favorite part would be, you know, watching the culmination of years and years of hard work, years and years of dreaming knowing the blood, sweat, tears, and the dedication that it takes to rise to that level and make it to the top. And ultimately seeing an athlete, you know, realize their dream, live out their dream. Those moments to me 
are so powerful. And those are moments that even though I'm definitely not (laughs) at that top level, you know, I too for years and I continue to pour blood, sweat, sometimes tears into, you know, training and competition. So that's a very relatable thing to me. So to, to watch the culmination of that and to watch those dreams be realized and come true is, is definitely my favorite, my favorite part by far. Wow. I love that answer. I'm not super into sports at this point in my life, but the idea of pouring blood, sweat, and tears for something you really care about, I think is pretty universal. So I, I really love that. Well, this has been a delight and I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to give you the last word though. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we part ways? Anything I might've missed in my questioning that you would like to, uh, to touch on? As a sport media scholar and somebody who really has studied over the past several years, the intersection between, you know, sport, media, society, the effect that sport has on us, the effect that the media has on us with respect to sport, not just in our collective thoughts, but in our emotions and in our identity in multiple forms. I would just say to to understand and pay attention to how much of a vehicle for change sport is and pay attention to how much of a vehicle for change sport always has been. I often tell my students that a lot of times things change in sport before they actually change in society. And a lot of times sport can be a catalyst for change. If you look at Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball, that happened six to eight years before Brown versus the Board of Education. If you look at the implementation of Title IX in 1972, you can go back to about 1967 and you can see examples of women starting to push forward and participate in sport that had been previously off limits to them. You know, we've had gay players come out in different sports, which has opened up conversation about LGBTQ rights. You know, in the past couple of years, we've really started to have more conversations about mental health and we can point to athletes for that. So, you know, when people may knee-jerk reactions say politics and sport don't belong together, they shouldn't be there. I would urge people to take a step back and consider the long history and consider how sport has been a catalyst for change in society. Lauren Smith, Associate Professor at the IU Media School, thank you for speaking with us on the WFHB Local News. Thank you for having me. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Snyder in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. 
You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 